We are going to energize the country. We need to wake up and smell the coffee. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Tim Stanley, a journalist for The Telegraph, who's also written for The Spectator and several other publications, to discuss his latest book, Whatever Happened to Tradition. Welcome to the podcast, Tim. Hello. Um, So the first question that I'd like to ask, and it is perhaps a bit of an obvious question, is what made you decide to write this book on tradition? I decided to write it, um, first of all, because I have been on what they like to call nowadays a journey. (laughs) Uh, I have uh, been flirting with different traditions much of my whole life. And I I would say I'm a consumer of traditions, which is a a paradox we can touch on later, if you like. Uh, So it's a personal book, but also I had, as a journalist, covered Brexit and I'd covered Trump. And I think that in both cases, people were articulating uh, a frustration with the status quo. And that what people wanted was to some degree to turn the clock back. Now, not all people, but the people who voted for those two propositions. So putting those two things together, I think what people are looking for is something that reroutes them, roots them in their past, in their culture, in their country. And so I decided to write a book about what that might look like. How might that work? What is this thing called tradition? How does it function? And how could it help people? Mm. And as you say, it is a very personal book and you, you, you touch upon um, your own life, on your, on your own uh, political journey as well. I mean, at one time, of course, you're a member uh, of the Labour Party now, uh, not so much. But do you think that the, the Labour Party in particular is one of those institutions that has often had a trouble uh, with the traditions that surround it, because people will often say part of the reason that sometimes the Labour Party doesn't get elected at elections is that it holds on too much to particular policies that it has almost like traditions, such as uh, nationalisation and things like that. Do, do you think that that is something that is perhaps a problem at times with the Labour Party? Is it's maybe over obsession with certain policy traditions? Absolutely. There's a, there's a real tension there. There's two separate things to consider. One is the traditions of the party, and the other is the traditions of the working class, which the party seeks to be a voice for. If you take the first one, there was an argument uh, until the 1990s that the Labour Party was actually too wedded to its traditions, as mm. you've suggested, uh, that, and in particular as expressed in certain clear socialist policies, and that Labour had to divorce itself from its traditions in order to win and that's when you get new labor. The problem is that takes us onto the second issue, which is uh, the working class relationship with tradition, uh, which uh, and, uh, it is not just my argument, but it's the argument of a number of, of scholars that uh, tradition is very important to the working class because when you are poorer, you're subject to a great deal of economic change and that change is very destabilizing. Mm-hmm. And therefore the working class requires a sense of tradition in order to retain a sense of psychological stability. So when Labour went to war on its own traditions in the 1990s, it made itself appealing to new groups of voters, but it also alienated the traditional working class. So it's very difficult to see how the Labour Party works that out. It's got to walk a tightrope. It has to be a party of the future, one which appeals to that, that emergent middle class, but it also has to be a party which is connected to the past 
because there's a great deal of uh, patriotic and small C Christian uh, mm. people out there who like that stuff. And so Labour is in a very difficult position. And my, my heart goes out to it because that's the paradox facing progressive parties. They seek to represent people to whom tradition is very important, but by their very nature, progressives usually want to leave some elements of tradition behind. Mm. Uh, you, you touch upon it there, and, and you also discuss it in the book, that particular uh, groups, whether they be working class people in Britain or in, in other parts of the world, do often have a, a, a yearning for tradition as a comfort. And, and one of the things that you really do touch upon in the book is the collective nature of tradition, that tradition cannot really be passed on simply with a couple of individuals. It needs a collective uh, amount of individuals to keep a tradition alive. Do you think that part of the reason that we have seen a waning of tradition is because of a, a greater emphasis, perhaps both economically and socially, since the 1980s in particular, on the individual, that because we've placed more emphasis on the individual, that this in turn has hurt tradition because tradition is a very collective experience. Absolutely. I think you put it very well. That, that's the fundamental problem. An individualistic society will find it hard to sustain traditions. Mm. And as you mentioned, it's a global phenomenon. Um, we often talk about uh, the losers of globalization being in the West, we forget that there have been losers economically and culturally in other parts of the world as well. There has been a shocking epidemic um, of suicides among Indian farmers, for example. People who've been not just economically dislocated, but they've also been culturally dislocated because the Indian farmer was at the heart of Indian identity and culture. And when you have the recent economic revolution, uh, they lost that status. So you get a double displacement that takes place. You're absolutely right. The, the only thing I would add is that um, the irony is, is that consumerism historically has also often helped tradition mm. by making it possible for people to buy into it. And although individualism does set itself against tradition, it is, it is possible that in the course of people being atomized and building their own identities, it's, it's possible to imagine them choosing to invest in a tradition. So it might be that they're no longer born into one or submerged into one as part of a collective culture, but I think we're going to start to see a trend towards people choosing to buy in to someone else's tradition. Hmm. And, of course, one of the great collective uh, traditions that you touch upon uh, throughout the book, that you discuss throughout the book, is, of course, religion. It is a very significant uh, tradition and a very significant comfort for people. And one of the things I particularly found interesting was in the book when you discuss... Um, after Notre Dame was um, burned, that there were all sorts of plans to um, uh, rebuild it in a much more secular way and to sort of separate it from the kind of um, Christian traditions that were at its core when it was built. Why do you think that there has been this attempt to uh, secularise institutions such as uh, the church, given that you can still have a, a, a very secular society without attempting to interfere uh, with the way that the church operates or to make the church divorce from religion. Why do you think that there has been this push towards trying to make the church and, and, and churches around the world something that they aren't, sort of secular buildings rather than religious buildings? Notre Dame is a very good case study because the, the language that was used when discussing how to rebuild it not by everyone, but by a small but significant minority. The language was, that was used was one of inclusion and opening up. 
which are buzzwords of the 21st century West, uh, that everyone's got to be included in something. And if Notre Dame is a national building, not just a religious one, but a symbol of the whole of France, then perhaps it should be redesigned and reimagined so that it's no longer just about a Christian Frenchness, but one which is open to everyone. Hmm. If you do that, by the way, you almost inevitably end up with uh, architectural white elephants that please no one, because in trying to appeal to everyone, you lose a spirit of the original mm. and you produce something bland. I mean, you, you might just as well build a giant swimming pool or a car park. Municipal buildings are by their very nature, because they have to be, a, they're about serving the public. They're usually quite uninteresting. Um, so I think that's part of the reason is that, is that we have talked ourselves into a brand of Western identity which is about a people without a fixed identity. And I think, we've, I think that's been coming for a long time. I, I argue in the book that this begins with the 18th century and the Enlightenment and the mm -hmm. shrugging off of tradition, but it's, it's definitely entered a sort of hyper state in the last 20 or 30 years where there is a terror of excluding anyone from the national story, partly because the society has changed and we want to better reflect that society, which I think is a perfectly just thing to wish to do. But the consequence is, is that if you to come, back, to come back to Notre Dame, if Notre Dame is the symbol of Frenchness, do you allow the past to define Frenchness or do you take contemporary Frenchness and use it to redefine the imagination about the past? Mm. And I see that in the debate about the architecture. You could say, look, Notre Dame is at the center of France because France was, is really a Christian country, even if not in belief, it is shaped by its Christian past. So let's rebuild Notre Dame to reflect that. Or you could say, no, France now is not uniformly Christian. Mm. Therefore, we need to reimagine the symbols of our nation to make them suit that new identity. I think the latter is artificial. Mm. And I, don't, I, I think it has very limited appeal. And in the case of Notre Dame, it's not what they decided to do. Mm. One of the things that I think is, is, is quite interesting as well is the intertwining of history and tradition, because, of course, tradition is effective. In, in, in effect, a, a living a tenant to the past. It's a living link to the past. If you have traditions that have been going on for hundreds of years, they are a living link to the past. Do you think that there is something particularly unique about the current period that we're living in and its relationship with the past and attempting to redefine the past? Or do you think that it's simply something that all societies and all cultures attempt to do at some point have a, a a rewriting or a redefining of the past. I mean, you don't have to look at ancient Rome or ancient Egypt when you consequently uh, get a a new pharaoh or a new emperor who would write a particular figure out of history because they didn't reflect well on them or change certain achievements to uh, be ones of their own. Do, do you think that this is the sort of thing that we're seeing now, or do you think it's separate from? previous attempts to change the past and redefine the past? I, I, I think it is an eternal aspect of human progress, revolution and change that uh, in order to build a new foundation for the present or the future, people very often begin by discrediting the past. I, I don't think what we're going through now is unusual. And in fact, a lot of people who write uh, Jeremiah's about the present Lose, lose a sense of that. Mm. And, uh, and, and in a sense, they almost fall into the same trap as the people who are all about the present and the future because they are so focused upon contemporary crises, they forget there are lessons of history to be drawn from where it's come before. But, but you, you, mentioned, you mentioned the classical world. One could say the Reformation. Mm. Uh, there, there was a literal, there was a literal attempt to wipe away 
uh, the tangible artifacts of Catholic belief in this country, or the French Revolution, mm. uh, again, an attempt to wipe away the memory uh, of the Ancien Regime or to discredit it. So I, yeah, I, I think it's something we keep coming back to. And by doing that, uh, the revolutionaries actually pay tribute to history. They acknowledge the fact that it, if it shapes the present and that you cannot imagine a future without, without negotiating in some way with the past. Mm. So in an odd way, it's a compliment. There are, I, I, there are lots of statues that have been torn down recently where the vast majority of people who walk past those statues every day had no idea who the person was. Mm. <laughs> Absolutely no idea. Mm. Uh, if they had any any desire to keep the statues up, it was more ecological than it was political. It was just that that statue is where I've sat for the last couple of decades. I don't want it to go. And actually, the people who named the statues and tore them down, in an odd way, paid, paid a compliment to history uh, that most of us don't pay, which is that they read into it and they appreciated it and they understood it. So you, you could argue that the people who want to tear things down actually have... Um, have a far more passionate and personal relationship with history than many conservatives mm. who just want to keep stuff up because it's been around for a very long time. Mm. Um, we've touched upon, and obviously the main focus of the book is the positive aspects of tradition, but of course there are also um, negative aspects to tradition, certain traditions that uh, we would find uh, reprehensible and certain uses of tradition that we would find uh, offensive uh, to ourselves. How do you think you go about defining the distinction between positive and negative traditions? And, and can you, in fact, make that dis distinction? Because um, in the book, you talk about um, circumcision, for example, which there'll be groups of people who see that as a positive tradition and then other people who see it as a, a fundamentally negative tradition. How do you make the distinction between positive traditions and negative traditions? And can you, in fact, make that distinction at all? Well, in that case, I don't. Uh, I chicken out of doing that. Um, because partly, partly because my, my purpose is to understand why it's done mm. rather than pass the judgment upon it. Um, that said, and, and, and I also recognize that um, conservatism, reaction, and the placing of boundaries are inherent within tradition. I think that that's one key dynamic of tradition as, as to why progressives dislike it and distrust it is that in order for us all to uh, pass something on, we have to agree what it is, we have to agree to its rules, and we have to respect them. Mm. And we talk in a language within that tradition which, which excludes other people. So by its very nature, tradition seals itself off from the outside world and is very skeptical of change. So I, I entirely understand why people are, are critical of it. I, I would say two things. One is three things. One, change is inherent to many traditions. Some traditions are very... Uh, uh, some traditions are really rooted in self-analysis and self-criticism. Christianity is an example of that. Mm. People might not believe that um, because they, they think of the very conservative, particularly evangelical contemporary uh, Christianity, but hey, it's a religion that's been through countless reformations. So uh, it's inherent to some. Uh, second, um, I, I think there is a sort of Darwinian process that operates on most traditions, that the ones that are truly destructive tend to die out mm. because they lose against a better idea or because uh, they just defeat themselves over time. Um, and thirdly, I, I invite the reader to use their moral conscience and to say what they do and don't like. Um, and I, I, I don't see why one cannot do that. A lot of people assume that I, I wouldn't want to do that, mm. but uh, 
don't see why I wouldn't. Uh, it, if you come <laughs> across something self-evidently bad to you, then call it out as bad. Just because it's old does not mean that it shouldn't be criticised or, or go untouched. Hmm. And as, as you mentioned there, the evolving nature of certain traditions, you use the, um, the British monarchy of, as, as one example of a tradition that has uh, evolved and has, has, has managed to survive. Do you think yeah. that the reason that certain traditions evolve and survive is solely because um, people are passionate about them? Or do you think that part of it is that people are perhaps overly apathetic to them and just see, oh, well, there's no point in getting rid of this tradition. We might as well let it carry on. I don't think, I don't think most traditions would survive if that were the case. Mm. You can string certain propositions out among the public for a very long time until you get to a point like the 1960s when a lot was swept away in one go, when there's a sort of a reckoning mm. and people say, do we really need those things anymore? So I, I don't, I don't think things survive purely through apathy. I would, I would throw in a third thing, which is pragmatism slash cynicism, hmm. that some institutions survive because they very cynically and cleverly adjust in order to flatter the public and keep them on board. And that's what monarchy has done. Uh, a lot of people, some people, some Republicans still find the idea of monarchy disgusting, hmm. that someone is born to a job, which they think is both a, a slight to the public, but also the poor person born to do it. But... Monarchy isn't like that anymore. Mon monarchy is, is far more elective than it used to be. People can walk away from it, and they do all the time. Mm. Um, respect for it is not the same as it once was. It is no longer seen as a matter of divine right. It is really a, an arm of the state, almost. It, it's it's, it's a, up there with the NHS and the BBC. It has changed dramatically. So it has survived because it has adapted, and it has kept up with human need. Those are the traditions which tend to keep going. A few can compel themselves onto people through indoctrination and force. But most of those have fallen away. And what is left is the odd cult here and there. What is very interesting, particularly about the example of the monarchy, of course, is that it is uh, very spectacular, isn't it? You get, you get a real sense of, of spectacle during a, a, a coronation or a royal event. And one of the things that you touch upon in the book is um, music as a tradition, both for the uh, Yazidi people and for Catholics and, and, and for other groups as well, that it, it has this ability to um, conjure up, you know, a, a sense of, of being and place. Do you think, therefore, that tradition has to have a sensory aspect for it to be able to survive and to continue, that you have to be able to hear the tradition or, or actually see the tradition or, or taste the tradition for it to be able to still be relevant and, and something that people want to carry on? Uh, I would say yes, but I wonder if that's because I'm a Catholic. Um, <laughs> and to me, I, in, in all seriousness, to me, uh, there is a tangibility is one of the things that drew me to the Catholic Church is there's a tangibility to it. Um, I, I like to be able to see and hear and touch the divine or at least a representation of it. Mm. So I, I suspect that makes certain traditions very appealing. That said, even the Protestant Reformation found other ways to be tangible through print uh, or through the Wesleyan hymns later on. So there's a, there's a fantastic hymnal tradition uh, within Protestantism. So I suspect that every, everyone needs that. Uh, but yes, I, I think there's some truth in that. I, I, yeah, I, I think the most successful traditions are those that, that, tend, that tend to overwhelm and which also lead to some sort of transcendence. I think watching monarchy one, one 
is involved in an act of transcendence, mm. partly because there are there are literal religious themes woven into, say, a coronation ceremony in which the, the monarch is actually undergoes a, a form of transubstantiation, their person mm. has changed. Uh, but also just the just the overwhelming glory of it, the music, the uniform, the gold, the pageantry, uh, it takes you out of place and time. And I think the most effective traditions do that. Mm. Do you think as well that the way that traditions survive is that they have to exist within a, um, a sustained and, and, and stable nation? That a lot of the reasons that traditions have survived in um, the United Kingdom is that, although obviously there have always been problems in the UK, it, it isn't a, a, a nation that has been uh, continually broken up or um, changed from one country to another, which of course other countries around the world haven't had the same fate, whether they be uh, invaded or whether a certain section of them declare independence or whatever. Do you think that that's necessary for tradition to survive, that it has to have a stable environment and a stable country in which it can be carried on in? Because otherwise it's just going to be sort of dismissed by um, whichever uh, group may be empowered a particular time, whether it be a, a colonial power or an independence movement or whatever? Yes, yeah, so that's a very good question. Um, and I'm not quite sure what the answer is. Uh, is, is. Is it necessary for traditions to flourish for them to be mm. in a sympathetic culture? Well, there have been examples uh, where traditions have actually flourished in a context of oppression. Mm. Uh, so the, the Catholic Church in Poland, for example, mm. um, the question then is, can a, a tradition flourish in a context of apathy? I'm not so sure. Traditions have come and gone. Some have revived. Uh, French society went through a period of rediscovering its traditions in the early 19th century. Uh, um, some of them compromised, unfortunately, by a, a pretty dreadful monarchy. Um, so it's, it's, it's difficult to judge. I mean, it, it could just be that we're very lucky in Britain, as you say, that we've had a relatively peaceful history, whereas if China hadn't if the communists hadn't won in China in the 1940s, Chinese society would look totally different mm. because it's, an, it's, it's people are incredibly, almost constitutionally traditional. Uh, and you'd see that reflected in state and culture in a way that unfortunately you don't because of China and its cultural revolution. So I'm not, I'm not quite sure what the answer to that is, but that, that is the great test of the 21st century is can, cult, can traditions actually flourish in a context not of oppression, but of no one really giving a damn. It's, it's interesting as well when you think about it in terms of, for example, a, a country like the United States, which is a relatively um, recent country. It's, it's not the oldest nation uh, in the world in comparison to, to some other countries, but it is a country that has quite a lot of traditions associated with it, particularly in, in, in certain parts of the US. Do you think that tradition in America has a particular um, certain different meaning to perhaps tradition in, in, in other Western nations where uh, tradition is perhaps a bit more uh, politicised than perhaps it is in, in, in certain other countries? It's a very good question. And uh, there, there is a paradoxical relationship between philosophical conservatism and America, which I find mm. really interesting. And I, I will read and read, and I don't think I'll ever get on top of it, <laughs> because America is the product of a revolution. Mm. Uh, it, it is a very modern country. Uh, in, in, by most standards in the late 18th century. 
and it has broken away from the mother country. And you'd imagine that conservatives would hate it because it, yes, it is conservative, but it's trying to conserve a revolutionary order based upon some premises which are deeply unconservative about the equality mm. of man. Um, that's, that's not normal conservative stuff. So you'd imagine conservatives would dislike it. But on the contrary, many European conservatives look to America as a model, not just, uh, I mean, not quite, quite model might be a bit, bit of a stretch, but Edmund Burke certainly was sympathetic towards the revolution. Mm. Uh, de Maistre, the French thinker who is usually thought of as an extreme far-right Catholic counter-revolutionary, thought the revolution wouldn't last, but he wished it the best of luck, because in both cases, they believed that um, the American revolutionaries were trying to preserve an older order that had mm. been threatened by the by the British and by the British court. Um, and then later on, you, you, you see so much synergy between European and American conservatism when it comes to economic theory, when it comes to Thatcher and Reagan, but also Benedict XVI, what he write, who was a big fan of what he regards as um, America's sort of religious settlement, that he thinks it's struck upon something here by being able to separate church and state, but also perhaps because of that, having a very healthily religious civil society. Hmm. So I, I, I find it paradoxical that conservatives love America because so much, of, um, so much of the revolutionary forces of capitalism, which are very destabilizing, so much of individualism, so much of consumerism, and American cultural imperialism, of course, generates from America. Hmm. America is a force for radical change in the last at least 100 years. Yet conservatives rather like it. So I... I, I I find that I find that curious. Um, as as to what is the nature of American tradition, it's very strong, it's very family focused, it's very community focused, and perhaps that's one reason why it has succeeded. Mm. Um, you're, you're right; it does seem to have a lot of partisanship around it, but it, I don't know. It, it feels like it's going through a process right now, and I don't know where it's going to wind up. But I've always felt that American traditions survive because uh, they are democratic, mm -hmm. that they are not just uh, something invented by the state and promulgated by the state, but actually they're something people believe and practice in their everyday lives. And that's why I think American revolutionary traditions will last longer than French or Soviet revolutionary traditions. Mm -hmm. Uh, we're coming towards the end of the podcast. It's been uh, fantastic to have you on again, Tim. And I have one final question. Now, we've touched upon uh, religion uh, in this podcast, and it's something that you discuss quite a bit in the book. And one author who was very much uh, influenced by religion was, of course, uh, P.D. James. And uh, this week, a new series of uh, her detective novels based on uh, the Adam Dalgleish books will be broadcast on Channel 5. So my final question to you is this. If you could inhabit the world of a fictional detective, which <laughs> fictional detective's world would you choose to inhabit? Oh my gosh. Well, that, that's at once a very difficult question and a very easy one, because I have always been a huge fan of American pulp detective fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, and I would, uh, I would, I'd want to be in the world of Marlowe. <laughs> I want in Los Angeles in the 1930s. It's so easy, or possibly Mike Hammer, I think, in New York mm. in the 1950s. But I, there, there is a part of me that's always wanted to be in a trench coat with a cigarette, talking to a, talking to a dame in a, a sleazy bar. That's where my heart really belongs. Um, or the kind of the, the juvenile, innocent version of that is Tintin. My great hero was always, my, my hero was never James Bond or, uh, you know, any, or Star Wars or any of those. It's always I wanted to be Tintin. Uh, and well, I am a journalist and I've got a dog. 
So I'm getting there. <laughs> you very much are getting there. I think Tintin was a, is a particularly uh, good choice. Thank you once again for coming on the podcast, Tim. If people want to buy the book, where should they go to buy it? Oh, they can go on Amazon. They'll find it there. Uh, they can go on my website, timothystanley.co.uk. It's uh, published by Bloomsbury. And uh, please do buy it. It's a great book. Fantastic. Thank you once again for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam, and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Debated Podcast, like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast, or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one. Thank you.